Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, welcome dress listeners to our annual Halloween episode. We have so much fun doing these every year for you all. And as a holiday dedicated to the art of disguise, we of course love Halloween on Dressed. And today we actually get to celebrate two of my personal favorite films that always get me in the Halloween spirit. But first, April, do you have any favorite films to watch this time of year? Um, I do. And one of my favorite films isn't even necessarily Halloween specific. It is spooky, um, but you could watch it year round, friends. It doesn't have to be at Halloween, and that is Death Becomes Her. Oh which my is gosh. Amazing. It's a classic. Do yourself a favor. Everybody needs to watch it if you haven't already checked it out. Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, so, so fun. Bruce Willis. Oh yep. my gosh. I always forget about that movie, and it's so, so much fun. So good call. <laughs> dark. It's hilarious. It's really well done all across. Oh, it's so, so good. So this year, 2022 actually marks exactly 30 years since the release of one of my favorite Halloween type films. Although again, you don't have to watch it just for Halloween. It's not even about Halloween. It's just like Halloween-esque. And that is Tim Burton's Batman Returns. And this all-star cast featured Michael Keaton in the title role as Batman, as well as Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman, Danny DeVito as the Sinister Penguin. And actually next year will mark the 30th anniversary of Kenny Ortega's 1993 classic Hocus Pocus, which of course <laughs> stars Bette Midler, Kathy Najimy, and Sarah Jessica Parkers as the inimitable Sanderson sisters who returned 300 years after their deaths to wreak havoc on the youth of Salem. They are, of course, witches. And this is one of my all-time favorite films. I absolutely love it. And you are not alone, Cass. Uh, This is arguably one of the greatest Halloween films of all time. It's always on the top of the greatest hits list for Halloween films. And I have to say, people have been rescreening this all over New York City for little events and in bars and stuff lately. It's been everywhere lately. So that is part of the reason why it might be surprising to learn that when the film was first released, it was a box office flop. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, it only went on to achieve its star status after it became a regular feature of Disney's annual October TV circuit. And just what do these two films have in common, you might be wondering? Well, the costumes were designed by today's guest, costume designer Mary Vote, whose 40-plus years in film include such famous films as the original Dune, the Men in Black trilogy, and most recently, the fashion-forward box office smash hit, Crazy Rich Asians, and of course, Batman Returns and Hocus Pocus. And we are so pleased to have her join us today to take us behind the scenes of these beloved Halloween classics. Mary, welcome to Dressed. Mary, welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm such a fan of your work. I've been following it for many, many years. You've costume designed some of my most favorite films. 
Uh, and I'm so excited to talk to you more about it. But first, I'd just love if you could share with us a bit about your path to becoming a costume designer. For instance, was clothing something that you were interested in as a child or? Well, I grew up on the beach in New York on Long Island. There's like a little island called Long Beach. And it is like 45 minutes from Manhattan. So a lot of actors live there. You know, they just went there to retire or whatever, or they were failed actors. But for that reason, they always wanted to put on theatrical productions. Like the kids are the actors, the actors themselves, and the actors ended up being teachers in the local school. And so we were always putting on plays, you know, like everywhere, like in the street and people's backyard, (laughs) on the beach. It's like, it didn't matter where it was. So, um, and people would make up plays. But the thing is, nobody wanted to do the costumes. Nobody. And I thought, well, I don't really want to act. I'd, I'd like to do the costumes. That could be fun. And, you know, so I started doing it that way. And, you know, I didn't, I don't think I was old enough to even use a sewing machine. I was like 10 and eight or 10 or something. And, um, and I got the job because nobody wanted to do it pretty much. So it was like a default career. <laughs> <laughs> but as I, I guess I did it, I, it, it was, it was fun. And it was, you know, it, it was really interesting. And I, I kind of liked it. And we didn't get into character. We were just happy to like, people were just happy to like, you know, be on their fake stage and backyard stage. And, but what was really interesting about it to me was dealing with the personalities. And like, when you start dressing, you're like third grade teacher, your third grade science teacher. The dynamic is really interesting because as a, a student, especially a young student, you look up to your teachers and you think that they're really special. But when you start dressing them and costuming them, you realize that, well, they're kind of ordinary. (laughs) (laughs) So it sort of um, took a lot of the mystery out of uh, looking up to people. and, And it was kind of disappointing in a way because, you know, people were not as impressive as they were standing in front of the classroom. So the veneer gone. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it was actually really good training for working with actors because I never, I was never intimidated by anyone because of this early experience of, you know, when you start doing this, when you're in grammar school, it's like, it becomes more, you're more interested than intimidated by people and, and you want to help them. And the basic thing is you want them to look good. You want the project you're, you're involved in to go well. So that was, a, it turned out to be a really good experience for me to learn and to get the personalities is what always was interesting to me about it was the personalities of the people. And uh, so then after, you know, high school, you know, I kept it up with plays and in high school and they got more and more elaborate. And now plays in high school, they're like Broadway shows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ours weren't as elaborate as that. They were more simple. But when I go to like friends, kids plays, I go, Jesus, this is like, this is like a Broadway show. But ours were pretty simple. So then I I went to the Fashion Institute in New York and studied fashion because I thought that, well, fashion will be exciting, glamorous profession, you know, and and I, I thought that would be a natural progression from these like little plays that I used to do. So I, it was a great school. Fashion Institute is a really fantastic school in New York. I mean, amazing. And the best thing about the school was the students and the fact that the teachers were professionals in the industry. They weren't professional 
academic teachers. They were professionals who happened to teach, which was really the best experience. So, but then when I got into the fashion world, I really didn't like it at all. Yeah. <laughs> I, kind of, I didn't get it. And, and it was funny because all my friends at Fashion Institute were like obsessed with fashion. And like every pair of shoes that came out, they were like hysterical. And I was like, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, I can't really stay in a profession I'm not excited about because you just can't do it. So I thought, well, now what do I do? So I'll go back to school. <laughs> so I went and I thought, well, I'll go to California to do something completely different. So I went to the to the um, art center in Pasadena, which is more of like a, not really a fashion school or film school at that time. It wasn't. It was more like an illustrate, you know, art and illustration, big on car design. So I studied illustration there and I got a job right out of school as an illustrator. Other uh, designers, costume designers, because a job that came up like they would at that time, because they don't have it now. But at that time, they would have a bulletin board and they would have like jobs on the bulletin board if you wanted to do a job on the side. And a friend of mine who was a Japanese boy, young man. He got this job um, at MGM. Now it's Sony. It was MGM then uh, being a costume illustrator. And he said, you know, I don't really want to do it. Why don't you do it? And I said, well, do you think they'll notice that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not Japanese? I'm not a boy. And they said, oh, they don't care. So I thought, OK, well, the worst thing they can do is fire me or get rid of me. It's like, you know, how bad could it be? So I went there and they did. He was right. They didn't care at all. So I started working for it. And then, you know, I slowly kept getting like little jobs. And then I got a job as an illust- as a, uh, assistant, a costume designer assistant, which is where I really learned because I didn't, I didn't really learn anything about this in school because I never went to school for costume design, but I, you know, I had studied, I knew color and shape and design and I could draw. So I knew basic stuff. And once you know the basics, and you have an understanding of color, you can, your progression can be very fast because what you're just learning is, you know, tech, you know, you're learning how things are done. It's, it's actually not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I come from, I have a, I worked in film for almost 15 years in costumes. Oh my yeah. I've, I've done like all the range of jobs, design, aging, dying, um, all of that stuff, which I, I'm excited to talk to you about today. But it's really interesting because I think you can study costuming as much as you want, but it's all about getting that hands-on experience because being on a set, having to go in front of the camera, you know, when everyone's waiting or whatnot, I mean, it's just a whole different experience. And, and there's really so much that you learn just by being there and doing it. And one of your very first films that you actually worked on was David Lynch's now cult classic, Dune, 1984. Right, um, right. And in interviews I've read and seen with you, you've referenced this film a lot. And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about your experience and maybe what you learned and how it kind of informed your career moving forward. Well, the great thing about Dune was working with Bob Ringwood, who is just a genius. And I remember like a, like a year before I had seen Excalibur, which he designed. And I just thought, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it just for the clothes. And I just thought, wow. Whoever designed these clothes is a genius. I mean, this this stuff is amazing. And then I just, and he was from England, so I just never thought I'd ever even get to meet him. And a friend, he they were doing at Universal. A friend of mine was working at Universal and said, oh, there's this like 
movie that Gino G. Laurentiis is doing that David Lynch is going to do that Bob Ringwood is designing. And I said, the Bob Ringwood is designing? And so she said, yeah, I'll, I'll introduce you to him. And when I met he, I was actually impressed with. Like, I've not been very impressed with many people in the film business, but he, I was impressed with. And so he hired me, which it was like, it was really surprising. I had no experience at all. But <laughs> the Bob was like, yeah, this isn't that hard. You could do it. So, and he hired me as his design assistant, which is a pretty big job. Wow. So, but he, but Bob is like that. He's like, yeah, it's not that hard. <laughs> well, he saw something in you. I'm sure you guys clicked. Well, I, for me, it was fantastic. It was a great opportunity. So that was about Dune. The big thing about Dune was getting to work with Bob. And he would, he was the type of person, if you could do one thing, he would give you a million things to do. And so I ended up doing a lot of fabric with, you know, fabric swatching and, you know, he did all the design. I wasn't involved with the design, but I was involved with the fabric and, you know, doing things for him. And I did sketches for him, but he, I was just really observing him. And he was kind of a bad person to work as an assistant because he was so brilliant that it would be impossible to live up to him. Right. You can never, you know, you can never be as good as him or he's just so brilliant. It was, it was so it was great to get to work with him, but in a way it was bad because it made you feel like, kind of like not really smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that now, but you both co-costume designed Batman Returns. Right. right. <laughs> and I, I love all the Michael Keaton Batman movies. Those are my absolute favorite films to this day. I mean, we have comic book films have taken on a whole other level, but they just don't have this like artistry and um, practical skill that was employed in these early Batman films. And you all designed the most fabulous and fun costumes, yourself and Bob. And I'd love if you could tell us about your creative vision for Batman Returns and then how you collaborated with Tim Burton to bring this vision to life. Well, Bob had designed the first Batman. And it's funny you talk about like Michael Keaton because in the first Batman, I don't know if Tim ever talks about this. I'm not sure. But Bob Bob told me this, and I, I believe Bob, although Bob is perfectly capable of making up a story. So <laughs> it's maybe not true. But when they did the first one, Bob said that Tim wanted to do Rat Boy. He didn't want to do Batman. He wanted to do Rat Boy. And so the costume was going to have fur on it and be kind of like rat-like. And they showed it to the studio, and they were just like, are you insane or something? This is Batman. <laughs> this is from the comic book. This is a heroic character. They're not like Rat Boy. That's a completely different movie, a movie we do not want to make. So, you know, Bob had to design this costume for Michael Keaton where he looked heroic. And Michael Keaton looked exactly like Rat Boy, but he looked nothing like Batman. And that's why, where this like sculpted costume came from, which is very much like the still suits that we did in Dune. Right. It's, you know, if you look at the still suit and you look at the first Batman, it's kind of the same costume. It's just the design is slightly different. So Bob had already had this relationship with Tim during the first movie, which to the surprise of everyone was very successful. And so then he was going to do the second Batman, Batman Returns. And he asked me if I wanted to co-design it with him. And I was like, of course, I mean, any opportunity to work with him, you know, and then to to co-design it, that would be great. Because there were a lot of characters in it. And the look of it was, it had like a very, Tim kind of wanted it to be like 40s-ish, like a 
a 40s flavor to it. And because it was at, at Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers has a giant uh, costume warehouse of all these, you know, clothes from the 30s and the 40s. They, they sort of kept everything. So we got a lot of the background stuff from there and they let us adapt it, like use a skirt from this and do a top from that. At that time, you were allowed to do that. Now they, they act like everything is so precious. You can't do anything. But at that time, we were allowed to mix and match periods and we were allowed to take clothes and, and repurpose them and, and create something different. So a lot of the clothes on the background are sort of from the archives of Warner Brothers. Although we did make a lot, we did make a lot of clothes. We made a lot of the background clothes. And then, of course, all of um, Michael's suits were made and all of um, Michelle Pfeiffer's clothes were made, all her suits and her day stuff. But it was, uh, it, it definitely had a very 40s feel to it. Sort of like old Hollywood 40s. Yeah, the world that you all created is just so incredible. I love it. It's so fantastic and, you know, fantastical in so many ways. Michelle Pfeiffer's cat suit. I read that you had 40 versions of that. And that she had to be vacuum sealed into it and then doused in silicone. Is that true? It was that no, it's a, it's a really a very simple costume. <laughs> <laughs> and the only reason there were 40 of them it was was because, you know, it was made out of latex, which rips really easy. And for some crazy reason, we decided to give her these like really sharp things on her claws because it looked like they were um needles. And because the idea was she made this costume herself and she had these like weird odd sharp things on her fingers, which is a really bad idea for wearing a latex costume. Right. <laughs> for sure, she would be ripping this costume every day. So that's why we had so many of them. And then she had stunt doubles and she had flying doubles and she had a, a gymnastic double. So there were a lot for them. But really the costume was like one costume, mm-hmm. just multiples of it. And it had a big zipper in it. You just like, you had to, she had to put baby powder on to get into it because you know, it can be a little sticky. So, you know, she just hopped into it, zipped her up, put her corset, corset, which went on over it and her boots and her gloves. I mean, it took her a while to get into it, but it's not a complicated costume. And then she was painted with liquid silicone because the stitches on it, which were not our idea, that was um, Tim Burton's idea because he has this like stitch thing. And, you know, it was it's an interesting idea because he said he wanted it to look like the Calico Cat, which I don't know if you remember, it was like a children's book where you had this cat that had stitches on it. So he wanted to have that kind of feeling. And he said, I, I want her to have stitches all over her, like she's going to come apart. And when Bob and I first heard that, we looked at each other. And then later we talked to each other. We said, well, maybe he'll forget he said that. <laughs> You always hope for that, and it never quite happens. So then, you know, we let a week go by, and we showed him the costume again, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was really beautiful. And he said, yeah, this is nice, but where are the stitches? And we were like, well, it's latex, and you can't stitch it because it'll rip. And he said, well, I don't care. Use it out of, make it out of a fabric that has stitches. So we thought, okay, he's not going to give up on this. (laughs) we decided, you know, it was Bob's idea. I think let's just sculpt the stitches and we'll glue them on, which is what we did. And when you glue on stitches, the costume had glue all over it. I mean, in person, it looked terrible. 
I mean, really, with all these stitches on with glue all over the place. But so then we well, if it's really shiny, then that will help. So we we painted it with like silicone, which made it a little thick, but you didn't see the glue then. And then the whole thing was shot at night. It was never seen during the day. And it was shot at night. So it looked it looked great on film. Oh yeah. I mean, it's one of the sexiest costumes in film history, I think. It's so, I mean. It's an amazing costume on film. In person, it looks terrible. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> oh, it was terrible in person. In fact, it was going to be exhibited at the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art. Not, not the modern, the Met in New York. And so I went to see it. I was so excited to have like a costume at the Met. And it was in some big show called Savage. It was a fabulous show. And then there was the, all these fabulous costumes. And then and it was fashion. So the fashion stuff always looks great in person. And then there was this costume on this mannequin, <laughs> dusty and dirty. And oh, it was it, it was hideous. It was really hideous. And it's never looked good. I've never seen it in a show look good. It looked good once when right after the movie came out, we did an exhibit at Macy's Windows for Christmas of the costumes. And then we had a special mannequin made and then we painted it with like clear vinyl or something. So it looked fabulous then, but that's the only time it looked good. Yeah, and I don't think people think, you know, on film it looks one way on when you see it on the screen, but I mean, those costumes really get beat up too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is truly a cinema costume. But getting back to the stitch thing, even though we were against the stitches, I think that's what makes the costume. And that was Tim Burton's idea. Because without the stitches... It's just, a, you know, the black latex jumpsuit. You know, it's beautiful, but it's not special. So I think what makes it special are the stitches, and then they come apart. So the costume wasn't three stages, so that, that added to the number of costumes. And because it was the three stages, when you saw the skin, the skin had to be like a, a, a tan latex because you couldn't actually cut it because it would never hold up. So it was, it was a complicated costume to make, although it was pretty simple. And the only reason it worked is because Michelle Pfeiffer has the perfect figure for that costume. And she moves beautifully because I think she must have been a dancer. And she's just so graceful and she moves so great because I would say that 90% of actors, actresses wearing that costume would look absolutely terrible. Yeah, I mean, 99% of humans, I would say. I mean, that's a very <laughs> that's a very specific costume. And I'm glad you kind of mentioned that, too, because her body, you know, like, fit her like a second skin. But then I've read an interview with you where you talk about how, you know, for Michael Keaton, you had to build those that muscle suit. Whereas today, you don't have to do that. These actors get so beefed up and, you know, they're like, they gain 50 pounds in muscle for these action roles these comic book characters, but back then you were you were creating this sculpted muscle. Can you talk a little bit about creating the bat suit? Because it's a really cool process. Well, that was that was totally Bob's thing was the bat suit. But I, I know how it was created because it was the same way we, we did with the still suits. But now it's different then because then you didn't have laser scans, which you have now, which are really easy. We had to do, um, you know, plaster casts. And you have to do the plaster cast and then you make a cast of of the body of the person and i think what we did was you put a leotard on it i know with the with the still suits we put a leotard on it and then there was carved foam to make the um muscles but on the bat suit 
there was no leotard. I think the sculpting was done right on the body, right on the mannequin. And then they did a mold mold from that. And one that I worked on, it was really hard to get the body, the sculpting to look right. And there was a, I think he's a director now. I think his name was Steve Wang. He came in and did the sculptor. So, and there's a lot of people involved in these costumes. I mean, there must have been, in the work room, there must have been 50 people. So it's like, there's an awful lot of people that have their hands on these things. And there's a really cool video, actually, that shows the process that I found um, kind of a, a video that interviews you and Bob, and and then it takes viewers behind the scenes to show how the bat suits were made. And I'll put a link to that dress listener so that you can see it because it's so, so cool. The next movie I want to talk about is, of course, Hocus Pocus. This is our annual Halloween episode. I thought it would be really fun to talk to you about this iconic film, uh, starting with just maybe if you could tell us about your research and how you researched and developed the now iconic clothing of the Sanderson sisters. Right. Well, we knew who the actors were from the get-go. We knew it was Bette and, you know, and Sarah. And yeah, so we knew who it was, which is the most important thing, because you cannot design a costume for people unless you know who they are. And Bette is a very big personality. And when you're designing costumes, you can't have the costume be bigger than the actor. Like their personality has to come forward. Otherwise, it looks like it's not, the costume doesn't become part of them. And it's particularly if you're doing clothes that are slightly theatrical, if it doesn't become part of them, it looks like a Halloween costume. And that's one of the things that we didn't want it to look like a Halloween costume. We wanted it to look like, well, these are their real clothes. But they were, you know, over the top and theatrical. But because it was bet, you know, I knew that we could go kind of far with it, even though it was supposed to be like 16, like I think 1640s during the witch trials. So it could be exaggerated because she could, she's very believable. She believes it, like she's not embarrassed by the costume, as some people might be. Right. You know, but she never, she never was. And at first, when I first showed the costumes to like the studio, because even then they, at Disney, they have to approve everything. And, you know, the, the studio exec said, well, what is this? These, you know, witches wear black costumes. <laughs> I just thought, oh my God. I said, but, you know, and they were not interested in listening to me at all. They were just like, you know, go make black costumes. And so Kenny Ortega, who is the director of the movie, he was a, a performer himself. I had worked with Kenny before on a movie called Shag when he was the choreographer. Oh, cool. He was actually in the 70s in a group called The Tubes. And he would wear like, you know, five-inch platform purple and purple. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So he was very uh, theatrical person himself. So I knew that if I explained to him, like, you know, it's bad, she should be in color. It's, you're going to have a musical number in this. It's going to look ridiculous in black. And he's like, well, of course. I said, well, can you tell the studio? Because they don't care what I think. And so he did. He went to them and he went to bed and he was like, like you know, this is what we want to do. And I think the only reason the studio agreed to is because they thought, well, this is a nothing movie. It's a small budget. No one's ever going to see it. And, you know, let them do what they want. And, the, you know, who cares? So we got away with it just because they didn't think the movie was worth the aggravation of fighting with Kenny and fighting with Bette about it. Because at this point, Bette wanted to wear color. And I think I got the idea of this from work 
you know, when I would go to my office, I would walk through the animation building and they would have all these beautiful paintings of backgrounds from Snow White and Pinocchio and Sleeping Beauty. And there was the colors were so beautiful and so rich. And I thought, well, this is a Disney movie. This, this, this should look like this. It should look like a classic Disney animation film. And, and I went through there every day. So I just got, you know, I was so in love with these, these backgrounds and the colors. And then I would go to my office, which is called the Shorts Building, which is called the Shorts Building because they used to do short animation there. And it was like Walt Disney's office, his oh. first office and his brother. And it was, it was like actually where my, gro- I li- live in Los Feliz. And it's where my grocery store is now was where the shorts building was. And when they got their, their new studio in Burbank, they moved the shorts building to the main lot. So it was their original building of their original studio. And so that's where my office was. So it was really exciting to be in the same building that Walt Disney was in when he was doing Mickey Mouse and the, and the early animation. And this, that was before Snow White, because I think they did Snow White on the, on the Burbank lot. I'm not sure, but I think so. But so that was really inspiring. And then when you meet Bet, I mean, she's so inspiring. And she's so bigger than life that, you know, she could wear anything. I mean, she, she wore a lot of really famous costumes on stage that it couldn't be too big for her because her personality is so big. And it couldn't be boring, as you said. You couldn't just put her in a boring black outfit. It had to be fabulous. Well, why would you? It just yeah. doesn't make any sense at all. And we were just lucky to have a director, Kenny Ortega, who got it and wasn't afraid of, and he didn't have a lot of experience then, but he was not intimidated to tell the studio, no, this is what we have to have. This is what that wants. So if it wasn't for him, they would be in black dresses for sure. Because that's what they thought was right. <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about how you blend, you know, because as a costume designer, of course, you do your historical, you know, research, but historical accuracy isn't always the goal. It certainly wasn't the goal here because you're also using clothing as a storytelling device that needs to send a message. And I think you, you've done such an incredible job kind of blending that historical, like you can tell they're historic figures, but you take a lot of artistic license with them. And then also the Billy Billy Butcherson character. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Right. I know with Billy Butcherson, there was a book that I used to read all the time as a kid called The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, yeah. Wide Crane. And there were like woodcut illustrations in the book of Ichabod Crane. And I always loved that that costume. and I love that character. And the Billy Butcherson is exactly that character. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I just, I just sort of lifted that exactly from this, you know, Ichabod Crane book. And um, although that was all in black and we did his Morning Grays. And, but the silhouette is, is just such a cool silhouette. And so that's pretty much where that came from. But with the three girls... We, you know, we, I wanted all this fabulous color because of looking at all these backgrounds of the, the, fa- the classic Disney animations. And I thought, well, there is no color like that. And even if you do find one piece, it, it doesn't all match. It's all different, you know. So I thought, well, we're going to have to dye it all. And I had this dyer, Marietta Lang, 
who I'd worked with on Batman Returns and on Dune. And she's just a brilliant, brilliant dyer. And so we got all the fabric in white. It was like, and it's mostly silk because silk dyes the best. Bet's costume is all silk. Like, and so Marietta, I gave her like, you know, I did sketches and I gave her my sketches and, and we worked together on, on dyeing the fabric. And she dyed all of it in her kitchen. It's not like professionally dyed or anything. In her washing machine and in like pots. And I mean, it was very, uh, it was very loving hands at home. But, and that's why I was amazed that there's any color at all in the original costumes because it's all hand dyed and they used to rent it out on Halloween to people, just to the public. Yeah. Yeah. And then they would send it to the dry cleaners. Like I'm shocked that there's any color at all because it's not, it was all like vegetable dyes because I, we wanted to look organic of like, even though they were theatrical, it should look like of the period, like, you know, organic vegetable dyes. Maybe they somehow got this fabric somewhere <laughs> in the 1600s. But so Marietta dyed all the fabric, except for, I think, um, with Kathy's, like the plaid, she, she has a little plaid thing somewhere that was bought. And maybe it's probably over dyed, but for the most part, things were were all dyed. And we wanted to have symbols on um, Beth's dress. And so I looked through the rune alphabet and crop circles and and then designed these symbols that look like something, like you don't know what they are. But we didn't want to do embroidery because that looks kind of fake and they wouldn't, it just looks like it's overworked. And when it should look more magical, like the symbols just sort of appeared on the clothes. And Marietta knew this technique, like a bleach resist technique. It's kind of, I think it's the, she learned it from the Italian dyers when we were doing Dune, but um, I think it's a Japanese technique. It's like shibori, but it's not shibori. But you do like a stencil of the symbols and you put the stencil on the fabric and then you spray like a water and bleach in it. And then you watch the fabric bleach. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and then you have, I think she sprayed something on it to stop the bleach. I don't, I'm not sure what it was because I don't know what would stop bleach. But somehow she got it just perfect. So they, it has a very magical look to it because it just sort of appears. Yeah. And it doesn't look man-made in any way which we were trying to stay away from as much as, as we could. And then for the flying capes, we use this special silk, which is actually outlawed now because it's so thin, it's, um, it's not fire retardant. And it moves by itself. And that's what, when you see the, um, the girls flying and the capes are moving a lot, they, they just had like, like one little fan on them. It's just <laughs> fabric is so thin, it's like butterfly wings. It just moves like crazy. But it's just like, don't smoke near the girls. <laughs> <laughs> I also heard you talk about how like horrifically uncomfortable their flying harnesses were. You know, it's funny because I, they look to me horrifically uncomfortable, but they never complained about it. And I uh, mystified by that. <laughs> Professionals, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, they were pretty tough, those three. They never complained about anything, which is like, unusual because they had yes. a lot to, they had a lot to complain about but um now the the flying harnesses are great because Cirque du Soleil has developed really fantastic I think it's the Foys have, have designed really fantastic flying harnesses that are 
that they make from, you know, body scans and they're just beautiful. But at that time when we were flying, they would take a pair of blue jeans and put like, you know, lamb's wool inside and put like these big, you know, pieces of metal that had on this. Oh, they were just so crude. And they were made <laughs> by the special effects department who were like, you know, they, they were safe. And all they cared about was safety, which is the most important thing, of course. But they were not comfortable. Like when they when they would hoist them up, it would pull up in the crotch. It was like, oh, my God. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I think actually listeners might be really surprised you kind of mentioned it, that this was a very small budget film. And it actually at one point your budget ran out. It was never replenished. How were you able to work around this? I mean, it's so fascinating because especially because we now know that this film went on to be, you know, one of the most famous and beloved Halloween films of all time. And I love learning these stories. <laughs> when I did the film, I knew it was going to be small budget, but I thought it would be really fun to do. And I didn't really think it through if I had thought, because other people had turned it down because they go, you can't do it for that money. And so I, I didn't really think it through. And I wanted the girls' clothes to be really special. I thought, well, if their clothes are really great, then that'll carry the film. And um, after I designed them and we dyed all the fabric and I, I went to Western Costume to see if they would make them. And they would make them, but they were going to be so expensive. I said, well, that's impossible. I can't afford that. 
And then once again, Bob Ringwood uh, told Bob about it. And he said, oh, a friend of mine, uh, Jenny Green, runs the workshop in San Francisco Ballet Company, the San Francisco Opera. And maybe they'll make them for you because they, you know, they're an opera company. They, they'll just do it for fun. And I thought, well, an opera company is perfect because they're corsets and they're capes and they're exactly the kind of thing opera companies do. So I talked to Jenny and she was like, yeah, that's great. We're not doing anything right now. And, and I like to keep the workroom busy. So I sent her the sketches and I sent her the fabric and uh, she did it. Like amazing. And so then she made the costumes, sent them back and uh, we fit them. They, they fit perfectly. And they're kind of big, except for the corsets. And the corsets are adjustable. So, yeah, by some miracle, they all fit. So we just got lucky with that. So they were expensive, but they weren't, they were doable. Like if I had made them at a proper costume shop, we, we wouldn't have been able to do it. But at, at uh, Disney, they have a gigantic costume shop. We costume where they keep all their costumes from all their movies. And if you're doing a Disney show, you pay like at that time, you paid five thousand dollars and you could take as much as the clothes as you want. You know, you could take like ten costumes or you could take ten thousand costumes. It was sort of like an all you can eat deal. <laughs> and at one point, after I finished all the girls' clothes and did, you know, the the kids and like the little girl, Danny, and then we were gonna have the big Halloween party, and I had totally run out of money. So I went to my unit manager, Whitney Green, who was really wonderful. And I said, well, can we get more money? And she was, oh, I don't know. And so she arranged a, a meeting with one of the executives. And I said, you know, we have this big party left. Can I have some, can I have some more money? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, uh, no, you're, you're out of money. And I said, yeah, but I'm, I have a whole scene to do. He said, well, it's your problem. <laughs> oh no. So I thought, okay. So I went to the the Disney warehouse and they had tons of costumes. And you know, I was kind of annoyed that they wouldn't give me money. So okay, I'm gonna use all these costumes from all their old movies. And if they get mad, tough. So I had, <laughs> like, I had this clothes from Tron there, this and there's like Elvis clothes, there's like there's a ton of like if anyone is like a knows the Disney movies. Movie they, connoisseur, they, yeah. Yeah, they'll see clothes from every Disney movie, practically. But we didn't do anything that was too recognizable, like, you know, Mickey Mouse. Or, and we kind of mixed things up, too, so it wouldn't be too recognizable. So all the costumes for the Halloween party, which is a lot of costumes, are from the Disney warehouse. And from past Disney films, which is just fabulous. From past Disney films. <laughs> Disney films. Yeah. Yeah. So fast forward almost like 30 years. Did you ever in a million years think that this film would take on this life of its own? I mean, it's the number one film on almost every list you read about favorite Halloween films, greatest Halloween films of all, all time. Hocus Pocus is, if it's not number one, it's like top five. Well, when I first saw it, they did a screening of the movie and I went to see it. And they did the screening at Disney, with the, it was mostly Disney execs and their kids and stuff. and. We we're watching it, and I thought it was pretty good. I, I, I thought the girls were great. I thought that was amazing. You know, it was kind of corny, but you know, there was something about it that had a lot of sincerity to it. And um, all of a sudden, there was one point where, like, the cat gets run over, and a cat dies. 
Well, when that when the cat gets run over, all the kids in the audience start crying. Oh no! And then the execs go, "Oh my God, this movie makes kids cry. This is not a Disney film. You can't make kids <laughs> cry." And I thought, well, I guess they haven't seen Bambi. Yeah. <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, the, the crying kid thing wasn't good. So they didn't really like it. And they sort of dumped it in August. But I was surprised because at that time, you didn't have email or texting. And I used to get a lot of letters from people who were interested in the costumes and wanted to know how to make them. And they said, oh, we're, you know, our high school is going to do a Hocus Pocus play. And this was before it was successful. This is when it was a big flop. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I would like tell them how we made the clothes and blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I was surprised that it didn't do well. But I think that's just because it was kind of dumped. And then when it went to the Disney Channel or it got on television, I don't know whose idea it was to put it on for Halloween because I thought the movie was like dumped in the back of some art film archives. But someone had the idea to show this movie on Halloween and then it found an audience and people really liked it. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, fast forward 30 years, still showing on Halloween. Hocus Pocus 2 just came out, as we know. Um, oh my God. <laughs> have you seen it? I did see it. And I would have to see it again because I was... It, the, the first movie was simple. This was a, seemed a little more complex. There seemed to be a lot, lot going on. But it did really well, and people really seemed to like it. But And the girls seemed similar, like very similar to the first one. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I liked I liked that it um, provided a backstory for them. That was kind of my favorite part. Um, was oh, you got to see kids? the young, yeah, the young yeah, Sanderson the sisters. Kids were great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really liked those, those little kids. That, especially the little one who played Ben. Yeah, she was fantastic. Yeah, and I know the costume designer like updated the costumes, I guess, but they still very much, I mean, are inspired obviously by your original designs, um, which are so incredibly iconic to this very day. <laughs> Yeah, I thought Sal Perez, who did the costumes for the second one, I thought he did a great job. So fast forward to today, you've been working in film for over 40 years now. I'm just curious how you've seen the industry and costume design, costuming, and film change over the years, if at all. And I also just want to tell our listeners that you designed Crazy Rich Asians, which is one of my favorite films. I can't believe it's already been like four years since that came out. I know, I know. (laughs) Well, the process of designing costumes for a film for a story for an actor that hasn't changed at all really it's it's pretty much the same thing but the process has changed dramatically dramatically and I think really for the better I mean it's so much easier to make a movie now because of communication like you could text pictures to a director you know it's just everything is so much faster and you know when I was doing um, this character in um, Men in Black 3, it was this weird, like, fifth-dimensional called Griffin. And he he was this, like, world traveler and traveled in different dimensions. And I had found this pair of pants at a Tibetan store in New York City. And I said, well, I love these pants. The actor loves the pants, Michael Stuhlberg, but I need 10 more pair. And the owner said, oh, my mother's in Tibet now, in Nepal, She's at a market. Maybe they have fabric like that there. So she called the mother 
and this was 10 years ago. She called the mother and she got her in the market and the mother goes, oh, I just saw that fabric. You know, I'll, I'll go get it for you. Wow. <laughs> and so the mother not only bought the fabric in Nepal, she had the pants made and then, you know, put it in a DHL box. And I got them in like four days. Wow. And, but you could do things like that now. Like I could, if I needed like some kind of special handbag or something that I knew was in Singapore, I could WhatsApp one of the people I worked with on Crazy Rich Asians and then say, oh, I'll, I'll go get it and, and send it to you. And then I would have it in three days. I mean, that, you know, when we were doing movies 30 years ago, that was like a pipe dream. Right. That, that's not something that would happen. So the you can facilitate the facilitating of things now is is really great and people still have a lot of tremendous skills i was just doing a movie in italy in rome and we had a big dye shop and they were fantastic and then the cutter fitters are fantastic so it's not like the skill level has not lowered it's still really high if you use the right people but things are just really really faster Well, thank you, Mary, so much for joining us. I wonder if you can kind of maybe give us a hint of like your upcoming projects or what we can expect from you next. The film I was doing in um, Italy was The Old Guard 2 with Charlize Theron and Uma Thurman is in it. And I did the first one. We did that in London a couple of years ago. And then we just finished. I don't think it's going to come. It's going to be on Netflix and it'll probably come out next year. Oh, nice. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been so fun. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us, Mary. And dress listeners, you can watch both Hocus Pocus and the newly released sequel, Hocus Pocus 2 on Disney+, Plus, where you will find a ton of other movies to satiate your Halloween film appetite. Cass, you and I have talked about how we are not horror film fans before on the show. (laughs) So if you are little Frady cats like us, these are really fun and family-friendly Halloween movies that, that we love the best. Absolutely. I mean, the scariest I will go is the 1990 film Witches starring Angelica Houston, which I don't know if you've seen that, April. It is so good. And then there's also the 1980 Watcher in the Woods starring Betty Davis. So many fun films to watch, dress listeners, so little time. And with that, we've done it today, dress listeners. We are done with our episode. And may you consider your favorite Halloween film costumes next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us with questions or listener suggestions, you can do so by emailing us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we appreciate it. Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else who makes this show possible each week. We'll catch you with more on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.